I'd like to bring us to yet another iteration in our walk through the scriptures here. We finished the major prophets the last time we touched on our walk through the Bible, the progress of redemption through through the scriptures here. And uh, we'll have a few of the minor prophets coming up here, but it seemed appropriate perhaps that at this point in our study we would look, uh, begin to look at some of the New Testament. So today I'd like to draw your attention to the book of Matthew. Read in your hearing a passage that was, uh, of course, a prophecy. And I'd like to have you think as we consider this passage, it might be best for us to kind of take a deep breath right now, because this is... This is going to be a walk through Matthew. There'll be a lot of pages turning and so forth, but it's it's okay. Y'all can I know y'all are very skilled at that. You can keep up, no problem. Well, we think about uh, the key aspect of the Gospel of Matthew. Were we to single that out and think about again as we walk through the Bible, we think about this progress of redemption that God makes. That that. Again, book after book, year after year, the Lord adds to the testimony of God such that we can see and hear and understand His purposes and plans. And in the book of Matthew, the key idea here is fulfillment. Fulfillment. And you'll notice in the book of Matthew that there are a lot of occasions uh, where you'll hear the words, the prophet has said, or the Lord has said, or these kinds of things. And so I would uh, encourage you to think in your minds this concept of fulfillment. That is, what has God said, and now what has God done? And it would be important for us, even as we think of fulfillment, we would be well to recognize that not only has God fulfilled those things regarding the Messiah, but this process of fulfillment is not complete. We, we come to the Word of God as a living document, not living as such as being added to, but living as such as that God continues to work in our lives and to work through this process of fulfillment, even in places where you might not consider the idea of fulfillment. The reality is is that many receive Christ as the remedy for their sins. They happily take Him at His offer of forgiveness. They delight themselves in devotional thoughts from the Bible, all the while lamenting that they don't really know what the Bible says and that they know they should read it more. As I mentioned, we're to receive the Bible as living truth, as a record not only of what God has promised will happen, but a record of the fulfillment of those things. What God says will certainly come to pass. If we really believe the Bible, that it should have a central, routine, exalted position in our lives as life-giving wisdom desperately needed, then wouldn't we give it more time Now, this is actually not going to be a shameless rant to encourage you to read the Bible more. The reality is is that you should do that. But this really is the idea, uh, when we think of fulfillment, it has to do really with the idea of rationality. What I mean by that is, what God has said, He does. And because of what God has said, He will do, then we should, as creatures, enter into that and think, what has God said? And therefore, what should I do? 
How many times have you heard yourself say, yeah, I don't really know what the Bible says about this, but what follows? Well, typically what follows is we wind jam on something that we don't actually know about. And we, again, even that whole way of thinking, we're, we're presupposing the idea that while I don't know what the Bible says, there's other more important information for me to know in which I can now wind jam on what I think is the proper course of action in this case. And that, again, is to be simply irrational. It's, it's not, it, it, it doesn't follow the one and the other. What has God said? And therefore, what shall I do? As we consider the progress of redemption throughout the Scriptures, again, the key theme here in Matthew is fulfillment. This fulfillment idea, again, is not merely true of key events in Scripture, such as the building of empires. Or the winning of battles, the advent of the Messiah, but also in the aspects given, for instance, in right living, in moral uprightness, in personal relationships, in repentance and forgiveness. Here's an example. An example that perhaps you wouldn't consider is fulfillment. What's the first verse in the 23rd Psalm? It's okay, you can say it. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. What has God said? The Lord is my shepherd. But yet, we as creatures try to shepherd ourselves every day. Do we not? Do we, do we not decide that we're in charge? That my thoughts are in fact more valuable than the master of the universe, the commander, the one who not only ordered and spoke all of creation into existence, but yet maintains it to this day. It is the Lord that is our shepherd. What has He said? And what will He do? What are the implications as I lean into this idea that I, in fact, can't be my own shepherd? I'm unable, I'm desperate, I'm needy, and redemption will never qualify me to be my own shepherd. The reality is, is when God redeems us, we are still going to need a shepherd. We're still going to need a shepherd. Holiness and sanctification, the perfection that's coming to us in heaven, will yet still require that we have a shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I would draw your attention to another example. Proverbs 15.31 The ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. The ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. The reality is, is we often we take these as, as mere options for us. One of the most demanding aspects of following Christ is the ability to pick out His voice from a crowd of voices. Every child knows this. Every child can go to a playground that's filled with noise and laughter and hear His mother. They know. 
They're, they're ready to pick out the voice of their mother or of their father. And the Lord Jesus Christ says in John 10.27, My sheep hear my voice. And I know them and they follow me. Now, we call this by another name as we walk with the Lord and follow Him. We call it discernment. Can you hear the voice of Christ? I'm not talking about an audible voice when you're at home and additional revelation of the Word of God. I'm, I'm simply saying, do you understand the revealed Word of God such that you can make a decision about what to do? That's hearing the voice of our Savior. The ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. What is the alternative to that idea? Well, the logic here is rock solid. I tell you, there's only two options. I listen to life-giving reproof, and I live, or I don't listen to life-giving reproof, and I die. I die the death. And eternity in hell. Proverbs twenty two twenty eight. Do not move the ancient landmark that your fathers have set. You might be saying, okay, I shouldn't move fence posts. Thank you very much. That's a bad idea. What is the Scripture saying here? It's referring to the old paths. You say, well... Come on, I mean, this is 2023 here. Surely there are new ways that I can go, new ideas. Does it matter that I keep the faith once delivered to the saints as it was delivered to the saints? Before we go on to this concept more further of fulfillment, I would give you one last example of this, again, that you may not think of fulfillment. When we think of fulfillment, we may yet be inclined to think, okay, what did Jeremiah say about Messiah? What did Isaiah say about Messiah? We'll see that here. We're going to look at these passages. But that's not the only fulfillment. That's very important to us as we live. I draw your attention to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, in verse 1, Seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountain, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now we can stop right there. We can stop right there we can say, Ah, I'm so glad there's another option for me. So glad. There's poor in spirit and then there's some alternative to that. I don't know, but I'm still going to get to the kingdom of heaven. No? No, you're not. No, what has God said and what will He do? The Bible says that the poor in spirit, the poor in spirit... Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who mourn, they shall be comforted. Those who are meek, they shall inherit the earth. There's no place in heaven for the proud. You can't get there. What has God said? And what will He do? Now, let's 
check this out some more. So I want, hopefully, that you'll have a few, a few things echoing in your mind as you, as I would would wrap this up in a few minutes. But nonetheless, a few phrases here. What has God said? Have you not read? Matthew 12, 3, the Lord Jesus said, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? Matthew 12, 5, the Lord Jesus said, Have you not read in the law how the Sabbath, the priests and the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? Matthew 19, 4, the Lord Jesus said, Have you not read that he who created them from beginning made them male and female? Matthew 22, 31, the Lord Jesus said, And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? In Mark 12, 10, the Lord Jesus said, Have you not read the scripture, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? Mark chapter 12, verse 26, as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. This is a major theme in the book of Matthew. This concept of fulfillment. What has God said? Have you not read? You say, well, I don't don't know. I don't know how to go forward, what to do. The Lord Jesus says again and again, Have you not read? It's here for you. The pervasive darkness that Messiah would be born into, spoken of by Isaiah, is a darkness of the ignorance of the truths of Scripture. The Gospel writer St. Matthew was concerned with the same idea Christ was conveying to highlight the urgency of what has been declared by God in the past that was being fulfilled in the day of Christ. Listen for it in these passages we consider yet another phrase, what the Lord has spoken. What the Lord has spoken. You ever been in a situation, children, where you're, you're, you're in a situation where you, you've been asked to do something and you launch off on your own to go do that, and you arrive at wherever it is you're supposed to do this thing, and you're not sure what to do. You think in the back of your minds, what did mom say she actually needed? What did she say that I was to do when I got here? We get all excited, right, about... Entering into this, and then we're, we like we, we don't really know, and that's what Jesus is referring to here. Let's look as we begin this walk through Matthew. I would draw your attention to Matthew chapter one, verse twenty-one. Matthew one twenty-one: She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, this is from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. The plans of God are unfolding just as he intended, though cloaked in mystery and time and the misguided expectations of man. What has God said? Messiah is coming. 
born of a virgin. Verse 21, He will save His people from their sins. Now, we can, we can think about what we already know about the religious leaders and the establishment of the day when the Lord Jesus entered into that place of Galilee when He, when he walked the earth. We recognize, when we think, for instance, of the characteristics of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the reality is, is they didn't retain what had God said. Because they weren't looking for a Messiah that would involve himself primarily with the forgiveness of sins, with repentance and forgiveness and these ideas. They, they were not looking for that because they didn't understand the Word of God. I draw your attention to chapter 2 in Matthew, verses 16 through 18. Matthew two sixteen through 18. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. This is a prophecy from Jeremiah chapter 35, excuse me, Jeremiah 31 verse 15. It seems hard to take in what it is that Herod was doing. Killing all of the male children as he anticipated what Messiah meant to him. He wasn't pleased to anticipate the coming Messiah. He was furious, afraid of being displaced. And his horrible response again was prophesied by Jeremiah. I draw your attention to chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. This is a reference to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. The nature of his messianic redemption was clarified. It would involve repentance and sin. It would involve atonement and forgiveness, not the cultural expectation of a political upheaval to return Israel to a national state, as in the days of David and Solomon. Peter himself was shocked as he found out that receiving Christ's forgiveness also included him forgiving others. It's absolutely shocking. It's totally unexpected that the coming of Messiah would have to do with with spirituality, that the Lord Jesus Christ would introduce us, in fact, to a new type of food, a a spiritual food. That he He would say that, yet, my kingdom is not of this earth. Altogether different. They didn't understand. They didn't know what to expect. Because they didn't take seriously the things of God. But some did. Some certainly did. Anna and Simeon knew. They knew what to expect. And they greeted the Lord Jesus as a little baby. 
Mary ultimately wasn't shocked. Perhaps she was shocked about being the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ, but she wasn't shocked about Messiah. She wasn't shocked about a Savior coming. The nature of this messianic redemption is clarified here. I draw your attention to Matthew 4, verses 12 through 17. Now when he had heard that John had been arrested, that is the Lord Jesus, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Again, what what was said 700 years before the Lord Jesus came? This one would come. Where would he come? Not to Athens or Rome, the great centers of learning. Not even to that center of Jerusalem. He wasn't there. He was in Palestine, yes, but he was in Palestine as far as you could possibly get from Jerusalem. In Galilee of the great Hebrews, is that what it says? No, no, no. Galilee of the Gentiles. Messiah would come to the Gentiles. The apostate mass of the nation is described as being already swept away, a land of darkness, dwelling in darkness. God's plan was to bring the light at the very depth of despair. Again, this darkness, what does it represent? The ignorance of the people. They had no light, no understanding of God or themselves. Galilee of the Gentiles. Again, the furthest place in Palestine from Jerusalem. This is the way our God works. Messiah, He came, born where? Not in a palace, but in a stable. To a humble family, not an earthly king. Presented not in the great centers of Rome and Athens, but Galilee. Where did He go first? The great knowledgeable scholars of the day. No, 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 no. He went to the shepherds. To the shepherds. That's where he was. He went to the shepherds. This is also the trouble in our own culture. Those who come to Christ must be drawn, yes, by the Holy Spirit, but we're surrounded by people in our communities that have no knowledge of God or His creation, no knowledge of themselves, a total lack of understanding about life in general. They're purposeless. They're drifting. Our culture is in a very dark place. Certainly, this has gotten to where we are, the valley of the shadow of death. There is but one thing that will restore. That is Messiah. This is... Our own condition. It was the condition in the day when the Lord Jesus Christ came. Messiah burst forth on the scene. A light. John speaks of it. The light of Christ. I draw your attention to chapter 12 in Matthew. Chapter 12, beginning in verse 17. 
Chapter 12, 17, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. This is from Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 3. He's not depicted here as the son of David. But he's embodying here this idea of Israel as servant of God, servant of Jehovah. Here's some mathematics for you. Colin Delich, the great Old Testament commentator's view. The Lord Jesus Christ in this case is a certain type of pyramid, if you will. The base was Israel as a whole. The central section was that Israel, which was not merely Israel according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The apex, the very top, was the person of the mediator of salvation springing out of Israel. And the last of the three is regarded as the center of of this circle of the promised kingdom. The second David, secondly the second Israel, and thirdly the second Adam. The very base, the nation of Israel, the centerpiece, those true children of Israel, those who are sons and daughters of Abraham by faith. And lastly, the very top is the Israel of God, singular, this seed spoken of way back in Genesis, but also referred once again in Galatians. We see that this is the Lord Jesus Christ, none other than Him. And who is the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, again, this idea of the servant of God, the idea that He is the second David, the final David. He is the second Adam as well, and He is the second Israel. This perfection. We see that the Lord has this plan. And among His plans laid out in Scripture is something that perhaps we could call planned obsolescence. This idea that we see a thing. And the book of Hebrews does this beautifully. And this prepares us for the final perfection. We see a high priest... But those high priests referred to in the Old Testament that Hebrews speaks of again and again, those high priests die year after year. They have to offer sins and sacrifices, I should say. They have to offer sacrifices for themselves, but not the great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. We see the same thing here in Adam. There was the first Adam. And there was the second Adam, the perfect one, the one who would be the head of all those redeemed. There is the Israel. And there is, again, as the Apostle Paul would say in Romans chapter 9, there is this true Israel of God, the children of Abraham. Who are they? Well, they're the redeemed of every nation. And there is the second David, this perfect one, the Lord Jesus The affirmation that the promise of God made way back in Genesis chapter 12 concerning this is about to be fulfilled. Israel's true nature is a servant of God, which had its roots in the election and calling of the Father and the Son, manifested itself in conduct and action in harmony with His calling, the gracious purposes of God to the whole human race.
Consider the Lord Jesus. What would His calling be like? What would He look like? Verse 20 of our passage in Matthew is a reflection of Isaiah 42.2. Who is this Christ? What will He be like? His manner of appearing is quiet, it's gentle, it's humble. The very opposite of those lying teachers who endeavor to exalt themselves by noisy demonstrations. He doesn't seek His own reputation. He denies Himself. He brings what commends itself. He requires no trumpeting. The Lord Jesus Christ and His actions and His work will commend themselves. We as sinful people condemn ourselves. But the Lord Jesus Christ wasn't here to sell some sham product. But He was validated as the living Son of God. We see it prophesied 700 years before He would burst forth into our own time. We see further how He works. Not only will He not destroy the life that is dying out, but He'll actually save it. A bruised reed He will not break, and a smoldering wick He will not quench. Children, have you ever played with reeds? Sometimes they can be very long. And they would be wonderful swords to throw or spears. The problem is is they can't really withstand their own weight when held horizontally. They just bend over and they bruise. Now let's think about this wick, for instance, why don't we? This smoldering wick. You're all familiar with candles, right? Your favorite state of a candle, is it when it's smoky and no flame? Don't you love that? No, it's annoying. It's the worst case for a candle. A candle is either lit or not lit. But the Lord Jesus Christ takes upon Himself the work of a smoldering candle in a human being. Of a reed that He'll be very gentle with and not break. And that's how Christ works in us. This is Messiah. Chapter 13, verses 14 through 17. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart is grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. And with their eyes they have closed, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. This is from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. What will be the result of the Messianic preaching according to the judicial will of God? What will be the result? Well, we can look no further than John chapter 1 and see the result. The Lord Jesus Christ came to His own. Came to His own. 
They didn't receive Him. They didn't, they didn't receive Him. They filled in to this that was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 6, never perceiving, never understanding. As a nation, Israel will reject the long-promised Messiah. But again, we can think back to the Gospel of John and we see that those who did come received eternal life. This is the judgment of God. To be unable to understand the words of God. Spiritual eyes that are blind. The spiritual organ of hearing to be disabled. The spiritual sensory aspects of the heart to be covered over such to preclude understanding. Isaiah isn't the instrument of this dullness. He's proclaiming to the people that they themselves have been the instrument of dullness. And for many of them the judgment will be final. They will not hear. They will not understand. They they will not turn. It's a horrible situation. On the judgment day, there will be people who say, I, I didn't understand. But what Isaiah is telling us here, what Matthew is telling us here, is that it was a sinful ignorance. They're culpable. They refuse the words of God. They didn't hear them. They couldn't hear them. To not understand the Word of God is the judgment of God. It's the judgment of God. You understand, those who understand the words of God, it is the grace of God. It's not of your own making. But we we look around in our communities and our families and we see people who don't understand the ways of God. You say, I need a Savior. I need a shepherd. I need a forgiver. I need one who will stand in my place. I need a substitute. Yes, you know that. But they don't. They don't understand. It is the judgment of God. Humanity is proverbially inclined to overestimate their own abilities and to underestimate God's involvement. They expect that they can wait. They can put off a serious look at the declarations of God until the time suits them. They underestimate the pervasive noetic nature of their own personal sin. They play at their own convenience the commands of God, particularly involving repentance and walking in Christ. They underestimate the damage of their personal sin. We're like the little child that strikes his sister and says, oh, that didn't hurt. We underestimate the power of our own sinfulness, the diminishing of the truth of the real damage that it does, inflating the damage of others' sins. One of the things blind people want most is autonomy. They want to be able to do things for themselves. They want to be able to drive and pick up their groceries without help. And this is also true of people blinded by their sin. They want autonomy. They want out of the condition on their own terms and by themselves. But as much as all of us would like it this way, for the blind and for ourselves, it simply cannot be this way. The condition of blindness will not allow the freedom to do for oneself what seeing people can do. They'll always need help picking out their groceries and driving. Without Christ, we're spiritually blind. We can't see. We can't do for ourselves. The new birth in Christ brings not only a clear and true realization of our own sinful conditions, but a clear and true realization as well of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who makes all to be well. 
And I draw your attention to chapter 15, verses 7 through 9. Chapter 15, verses 7 through 9. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Matthew fifteen, seven through 9. From Isaiah chapter 29. This is uh, perhaps the most hard-hitting aspect of what I'm inclined to bring from the Word of God this morning. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You will remember, hopefully, as I began this sermon, the idea of the fulfillment of God. And yet also understanding that we, we're of a people not taking the words of God as seriously as He has intended. That it is, in fact, we have looked at the Scriptures and shown it to be utterly irrational to reject living the way God has called us to live. The reality is that in the Psalms and the Proverbs, Genesis through Revelation, the way that God says it will happen is the way it will happen. You, you can't outsmart or outwork God. You'll not defy the gravity of biblical theology. My point is, you'll not show up in heaven proud because the Lord Jesus said, only the meek will be there. You'll not show up in heaven in this way or that way because of what Christ has said. But we also recognize in the days that we live that this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. How can we know the voice of Christ? How can we distinguish between that which is the voice of God and that which isn't? That which is, in fact, the doctrines of men. Apparently, those trained in understanding and identifying counterfeit money spend their time on one thing, the real stuff. Spend all their time looking at real currency. Real currency. They know what it feels like. They know what it smells like. They know what it looks like. They know how it opens up, how it closes, how it folds. They know what it looks like when it gets washed in the washing machine. All these things they understand. And then when they see something that isn't, they know it right off. Is this not a problem? Think about our own day. There's much man-centeredness in pockets of evangelicalism today that can tend to be faithful expressions of godliness. I'll just say it. A toxic masculinity is part of this man-centeredness. There's appropriate biblical masculinity which contends for male leadership in the Hebraic view. 
What is the Hebraic view of God? It's this idea that husbands and fathers are centered on warm fatherhood in the context of familial relationships with the citizen-soldier concept. And then there's the Greek-Roman masculinity, which is centered on the fixation of men as primarily war fighters and secondarily as warm familial leaders. This hard man concept diminishes the truth of the horrifying consequences of mankind's natural inclination to self-absorption and sanctifies it as a last-ditch effort to save the human family, all the while worshiping human strength and rolling over individuals as did the thoughtless and shameless warriors of old who never learned biblical warfare. What am I talking about? There are two views of mankind. There's a Hebraic view and there's a Greek and Roman view. The scriptures are utterly and hopelessly Hebraic. And God has called us to be those people who express a warm fatherly care as our Master does, and as our Father in Heaven does. And we should reject, though we have trouble as God's people, because we worship strength. We worship strength. Those who are proud of their strength will not be in Heaven. They will not be in Heaven. Where does it say in Matthew chapter 5 that the strong will inherit the earth? This is the doctrines of men. The perverse human attractiveness and worship of human strength, human thinking, man-centered worship, self-sovereignty, rename something that sounds holy. Current cultural expressions of biblical religion seem to be inundated with cheap grace, which becomes an insistence that while Christ can purchase for me a way to heaven, His power is no match to remove the worldliness infused in my sinful flesh. We say, yes, I'm thankful that God saved me, and I'm so thankful that He left me just like I am. That's not the way God works. Yes, He catches fish, and He cleans them. He cleans the fish that He catches. And He comes to us as a loving Master, as one who has designed that He will take a tender reed. And we say, no, no, I'm not a tender reed. But the Lord Jesus says, you're a tender reed. You're the smoldering candle. There's only two options. You can pick whichever one you want. He comes to us, calling us to Himself. The Bible says it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Can we hear His voice? Will we hear the Master saying, Have you not read? Have you not read? Have you not read? Christ's Word will be fulfilled. All those who are redeemed in Christ Jesus will be outcasts, will be aliens. There will be a mockery, but they will enjoy sweet fellowship with Christ and His people. You say, I want to be popular with the world. I want likes on Facebook. I want Instagram to blow up. It's not going to happen. Because God said it's going to be otherwise. God says it won't work that way. And you can try... Try as you may, but the way of the Master is the way of the cross. The way of the Master is 
to be backslidden from the ways of the world and to be a follower of the Lord Jesus. May it echo in our minds, have you not read? That's the message that Matthew would give us today. Let us pray.